Thank you all very much. That was wonderful this morning. Hope everybody had a Merry Christmas. Everybody get what you wanted for Christmas? Yeah. <laughs> Any of it break already? Uh, isn't that awesome, parents? Um, well, I hope you all did have a Merry Christmas. I want to say thank you to all who were a part of our Christmas Eve service, all the volunteers, all who helped to set up, all who participated. It was a wonderful night, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed our uh, Christmas Eve service. It really is a great time and an intimate time every year. And again, thank you to all who were involved. Well, now we're setting out to see the last few days of 2018, and, and we've walked through another year. And for some of us, you may be sitting kind of at the extreme poles. Maybe 2018 was a sprint. Uh, maybe you're on the other end, you're like, no, I'm crawling. I'm, I'm barely getting across the finish line, and I can't believe that there is another year starting. Wherever you're at in the spectrum, we've almost made it. And as often as the case, we are, we are compelled and, and told to look forward, to embrace this series of new resolutions and hopes that no matter how 2018 was, 2019 will be better. Maybe we resolve to be more positive and, and less negative, to eat healthier foods, that is vegetables, deep fried, uh, to lose weight, to read more, uh, to advance our careers, maybe do a little less and grow in our faith, and the list goes on. And they're, they're wonderful. Resolutions are fabulous. But before we get there, before we start looking forward, I want to encourage us to reflect on what has happened. Don't be in such a hurry to leave behind 2018 until you can stop and look back and literally see the fingerprints of God over your life over the past year. If we're not careful, we'll miss that. We'll miss those fingerprints and how God is piecing and working in and through the mystery. I'm going to invite you into a personal journal entry uh, that I recently penned. Uh, it kind of relays the, the contrast, the conflict that sometimes happens in the human heart. I've often carried a stream of doubts and insecurities. At times I felt forgotten, overlooked, set aside, left to figure it out on my own. Such an impossible reality. You have claimed me as your own, and as you did with your people Israel, you did not choose me because I was many or because I came from a faithful and godly heritage. Truthfully, you would have been just in visiting the iniquity of my fathers to the third and fourth generation. Yet in your grace, you have chosen me from the foundations of the world. Firmly in your grip, I have at times felt I was going to fall, swore it was all caving in, and yet here I sit, quietly writing, kids peacefully and soundly sleeping, my lovely wife sweetly resting, and I'm left to consider. It is you who have sustained us. You have kept us as the apple of your eye. Now, it's such a mystery at times, to see the fingerprints of God working in our life, how he's quietly piecing everything together, sustaining our lives as his saints, as he has promised to do. But there are times from our own vantage point where it's hard to see how God is working. And in fact, sometimes we might even be convinced that God isn't working in our life. Let me let you in on a little secret. We all, from time to time, struggle to see God working in our life. And even the people who stubbornly, stubbornly claim that they, they've never struggled, they still struggle. 
And so over the next couple of messages, what I want to walk us through, what I want us to consider is what is called, what are, what are considered like the graduate studies of the faith. And what I mean by that is I, I do not mean that these messages are going to be like deeply entrenched in theological jargon. Okay, they're, they're not going to be di- deep and mysterious doctrinal distinctives and conflicts. No, these, these messages are going to be directed at the heart. Our heart. Hearts that can often become conflicted. Where what we read about in the scriptures as it relates to God and what we were experiencing in our life does not seem to go together. And we are left wondering, Where are you, God, in the midst of my circumstances? So I'm going to ask you a series of questions. I want you to answer this in the quietness of your own heart. Have you ever felt rejected by God? As if he has led you into impossible circumstances only to abandon you in your greatest hour of need. Have you ever felt so anxious and worried that you were robbed of rest, unable to sleep, eat, or even speak? Have you ever been in a season where you began to question the goodness of God, his faithfulness, his goodness, or even his love for you? Have you ever felt that God is punishing you in his anger, or that he has turned away from you? In disappointment. Have you ever been in a place emotionally where even thinking about God or meditating on his scriptures only seems to make it worse? If you can answer yes to any of these questions, we hopefully are going to find comfort this morning and this reality that we're not alone. In fact, the ancients have struggled just like us, and so we're going to turn our attention to a psalm of honest confession and authentic wrestling. It it does lead to a place of incredible hope, but it's going to take a while for us to get there. We first have to walk through the valley. As we all know, the great shepherd psalm of Psalm 23 tells us some wonderful things. In fact, I preserve for us just a couple of those verses out of Psalm 23, starting in verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He lied... He leads me beside still waters. Just out of curiosity, how many of you love green pastures and still waters? Come on. Come on be I don't see everybody raising your Are some people, I don't like green pastures. I don't like still waters. I like it, it's crazy and chaotic. What's fascinating is the, the Lord does this. He, he, I shall not want. He makes me lie down. It's wonderful in seasons when we're not in want, where we're green pastures and still waters and all that. Two verses later, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You all see the contrast there? I see two things when I look at that. I see one, there are seasons of of abundance and still water and green pastures, but there are also seasons called the valley, the shadow of death. Now, the one constant, regardless of the season that we are in, is the Lord, our shepherd. And so for the next two weeks, we're going to walk through the valley a bit. It's not to be morbid or morose. I'm not trying to be Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, where everything is just falling apart. But if we're honest, behind our smiles and the I'm fine are often hidden the I'm struggling, or I'm in sorrow, or I'm being swallowed by waves of doubt. And so with that in mind, we turn to Psalm 77. Let's open our Bibles there. Word? 
Psalm chapter 77. I'm going to introduce you to kind of an obscure author of the scriptures. In fact, if he had not authored 12 Psalms, we probably would never have even taken notice of this man. His name was Asaph. He was one of David's worship leaders in Israel, song leaders and writers. And in fact, Psalm 50, 73 through 83 are all attributed to Asaph. Charles Spurgeon writes this about the author we are going to meet this morning. Asaph was a man of experienced mind and often touched the minor key. He was thoughtful, contemplative, believing, but withal there was a dash of sadness about him. And this imparted a tonic flavor to his songs. To follow him with any understanding, it is needful to have done some business on the great and stormy waters. Spurgeon then cautioned that this psalm that we are going to look at is not just, it's not for the Sunday saint or for the part-time practitioner of the faith, that this is graduate level stuff. Spurgeon writes this, the hymn now before us is for experienced saints only. But to them, it will be of rare value as a transcript of their own inner conflicts. And so knowing that we are a mixed group of people, here's what I just, I think it's worth the risk. Because here's the reality. We're all enrolled in the school of hard knocks. We all are going to face difficulties, and we need to know where where to turn when we get into those seasons of sorrow. And so Asaph begins his psalm, his song of suffering and sorrow definitely in the minor key. Psalm 77, verses 1 through 3. I cry aloud to God. Aloud to God I cry, and he will hear me. In the day of my troubles I seek the Lord. In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying, my soul refusing to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. Every time we see that phrase, that word Selah, it is a, it's an end of a particular movement of the music. Now as we read these first three, three uh, verses, we're not sure of what the psalmist was facing. Possibly it was a deep sadness of emotional instability. Some of us have felt that. Possibly circumstances that were too much for him to bear. Sickness, death, and sadness are always close acquaintances. Maybe he was sick or somebody that he knew was ill. We never know, we'll never know what was causing him such inner pain, but we are invited into his inner world. When he writes, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. There are times in our life where our silent prayers do not seem to be enough, that we actually need to speak them, to hear them out loud. We want to know for sure that God is hearing us. Asaph turns his whole entire life towards God, and he declares, I'm crying out to you, God. But it's in these moments that it's not enough that we're just heard. We want God to act, to intervene, to somehow bring about a change in our circumstances, to give us relief from the grief we may be feeling. And only then will we feel heard. Well, Asaph was in a season of sorrow that seemed to have no end. Verse 2, he declares, In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. This was no momentary affliction. In fact, we're giving given insight grammatically that this was an ongoing and a constant affliction, maybe for days, weeks, or even months. 
Day after day, Asaph sought the Lord. Night after night, he would stretch his hand toward heaven for release, uh, for relief, tirelessly reaching. And I think in that, that's a pretty honorable posture. That for one who is, who is struggling, the, the one who is suffering as a godly saint, still reaching for God. But have you ever been in a time where you're crying out to, to God and all you receive back is deafening silence? When you're reaching out to heaven, just pleading for his touch, and you feel nothing in return, there is no lonelier or more tired place to be found. There's no passing pleasure that's going to fix this. No optimistic piece of advice. The sun will come out tomorrow is not going to be enough to soothe. I speak to those of us who try to practice medicine among our friends and family. Sometimes we're very poor healers when it comes to those who suffer in our life. There are times where we offer such cheap advice to those who are suffering. But at the same time, it could also be said that when we suffer, we often choose to not be comforted. I quote again from Charles Spurgeon, sage words it is impossible to comfort those who refuse to be comforted you may bring them to the waters of the promises but who shall make them drink if they will not do so listen to these lines this is so so good many a daughter of despondency has pushed aside the cup of gladness and many a son of sorrow has hugged his chains Isn't that good it's in these moments that even the sweet thoughts of God, right, his goodness and his grace, his love, only seem to sting. For even God, who was the psalmist joy in other passages, was now the source of great sadness and soul affliction. Look at verse 3. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. At this moment, Asaph is really struggling there seemed to be a major conflict between what he knew of God and who he knew God to be and what he was experiencing at the moment. Why would a good and gracious God allow such suffering and sorrow? Why wouldn't God intervene? I quote here from a commentary. All the while he groaned and complained as he remembered God, what he knew of God contrasted with what he was experiencing. The more the psalmists thought about these things, well, the more troubled he became, he became. Day after day, he continued in sorrow. Verse 4, you hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled I cannot speak. Nightly, the psalmist turned to sleep to find relief. Oh, how sorrow is compounded by lack of rest. Blessed are those who rest. But oh, the torment of those who turn to their bed once a place of refuge and comfort, but now a rack of torment. Troubled and tumultuous, our minds unable to find steady and calm seas of thought, we toss and turn. The psalmist strains like to pan the rivers of the past, so as to surface at least some morsel of gold. Verse 5. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Oh, there have been good days, I'm sure. The psalmist is setting out to understand. That's why he states, my spirit made a diligent search. 
As I read this, I'm thinking, this is a person who's doing all the right things. He is turning to God. He is being authentic and honest. He's exposing his sorrow and his sadness. But just as Dante wrote in his seminal work, The Divine Comedy, no more pain than remembering happy time and misery. His song would not soothe. His meditation would not heal. And so he set out to make a diligent search so as to discover the source of sorrow and the absence of solace in his life. And there's something that has happened over the last six verses, and I'm not sure if you have caught it. We may, not have, we may have missed it. In six short verses, Asaph has referenced himself 19 times. I want you all to see this laid out, Asaph's lament. I cry aloud, he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek. My hand is stretched out. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyes open. I am so troubled, I cannot speak. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made diligent search. Family, when we begin to focus solely and primarily on what is causing us pain, the sorrow in our heart or in our life, and the symptoms that go along with it, our sleeplessness and our sadness, our fatigue and our fears, our inner turmoil and anxiety, whatever it is that is that source of pain, when we focus solely on it, something happens. It begins to grow. In fact, it becomes all we can see. And we can't understand why God can't see it also. And we start to view our world and we start to view God like through this lens of our suffering and then we look up at God. The bigger that our issues grow, the more we become to deeply doubt the goodness of God. In fact, the psalmist even begins to blame God. You are the one that holds my eyes open. You are the one that is leaving me in torment. The bigger our problems get, the more we often doubt the goodness of God, because I believe we've been conditioned. We've been conditioned to believe that there is no purpose for suffering or pain or sorrow, and that it is to be avoided at all cost. What kind of purpose could be found in pain? Well, family, there is great value in pain, actually. Pain tells us when things are wrong. Pain can temper us and keep us close to the heart of God. It can be a humbling factor in our life. It reminds us every time that this is not our home. It also reminds us that we are frail. But we have this pervasive belief that somehow God is supposed to keep us from pain, to shield us from it, to alleviate it. And if he doesn't, then we're faced with some pretty tough, tough thoughts or staggering options. Either God is not good, or he doesn't care, or he's not capable. And I'm not sure which of the three hurts more. Family, suffering and pain 
sorrow and sadness, it does not negate the goodness of God, but from our vantage point, circumstances can severely shade our view of it. It's like going outside with sunglasses on. It's already dark. But as we view our life and our circumstances in and through those shaded lenses of doubt and fear and anxiety and pain and sorrow, even the little light that is available is hard to see. For there to be shadows in the valley of death, it means that there is light to cast those shadows. There is always light. In fact, we are told the Lord is always walking with us. But there are times where we cannot see the light. And there are going to be times where we can't see him. And deeper into the pit we climb. The psalmist plums the depths of utter hopelessness and he asks questions that we may be too timid to ask. I mean, out loud anyway. Will the Lord spurn forever? And never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. The psalmist voices some incredible fears. Have I been rejected forever, he asks. Will God never return with favor? Is his loyal love at an end? Has he decided to forsake his promise or his promises? Has he now turned in anger? Has he forsaken grace, chosen to send me away from his compassionate care? Two words seem to really jump out. Forever and for all days. Family, when we are in those seasons, when our soul is sick with sorrow, it's very easy to start believing that suffering is forever. And that somehow everyone, including God himself, has turned away if you've ever felt that, if you've ever experienced that, you are not alone. In fact, many of the great men and women through history have struggled. I think, this, I, think I caught just a little journal entry from Charles Spurgeon in one of his commentaries. He leaves his personal note in there. You should listen to these words. This great man of God. With no spirit left in us to sustain our infirmity, our case becomes forlorn. Like a man in a tangle of briars who is stripped of his clothes, every hook of the thorns becomes a lancet, and we bleed with 10,000 wounds. Alas, my God, the writer of this exposition well knows what thy servant Asaph meant, for his soul is familiar with the way of grief. Deep glens and lonely caves of soul depressions, my spirit knows full well your awful glooms. If you have ever been through such a valley, I say gently, maybe you're even there now. You well know the sorrow that the psalmist speaks of, that Spurgeon pens. And if you've never had to walk through such a shadowy valley, I hate to be the one to tell, us, tell you this, but during your journey of faith, your valleys await. 
overwhelmed with our own suffering and sadness that seems to stretch, we will at times find ourselves deep in a pit. And it seems like it goes on forever, maybe days or weeks or months or maybe even years with no end in sight. And so when we find ourselves in such a place, and it's not so much if, it's when, where do we look? And to whom do we turn? If you cannot find good in the present or any hope for good in the future, then family, I strongly admonish us to ransack the past. Ransack the past until you can see the profound power and movement of God on behalf of his saints throughout history ransack the past and continue to grab a hold of and do not let go every single story of salvation every single story of deliverance found in the scriptures until you are convinced at the core of your being that the God who moved mightily in the lives of his saints throughout history is the same God who is going to move mightily in your life today we need to get to a place where we stop seeing God in and through our circumstances and we start seeing God as the one who is above our circumstances. We need to be able to see through eyes of faith that no matter what we are facing, and I mean no matter what we are facing in this life, God's character never changes. There may be times in this life where we feel forgotten or forsaken, Those are common themes of the broken heart. Israel thought so. And then I unearthed this just beautiful little gem. Isaiah chapter 49, verses 14 through 16. I'll leave it behind me. Zion said, Israel said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Maybe those are words that you have spoken. Listen to this. The Lord speaks. Can a woman forget her nursing child? Mom, answer. That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. And all ladies, no, we will not. Even these may forget. Yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. What a glorious promise. So the psalmist turns away now his focus and his attention from his own suffering. He then begins to contemplate the character of God and contemplate his powerful salvation and deliverance on behalf of his people. Look at Psalm 77, verse 10. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. He speaks of the right hand. That is the powerful deliverance of God on behalf of his people. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Start to recount the great deeds of God. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. Verse 12, I will ponder all of your work and I will meditate on your mighty deeds. You see how the psalmist is now elevating his view. Your way, O God, is holy. Now, family, it does not say that God's way is easy, but his way is holy. That means just and right. And there are times where we will feel it is not right or it is not just. 
be reminded God's way is holy. What God is great like our God? Family, there is no other God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. Another way of saying that, God has flexed his muscles among the people. You are, with your arm, you've redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. And so what the psalmist is now doing, and what we are going to see, is the psalmist is going to turn to the most historically profound salvation that he knew of in the scriptures and in his history. He is going to turn to a time in history when God powerfully delivered the Israelites from bondage and slavery in Egypt and then led them immediately to what seemed like their certain death. I'm going to say that again. The psalmist is going to look back on the greatest salvation in the history that he knew of when God powerfully delivered the Israelites from the bondage and slavery of Egypt and immediately led them to what appeared to be their certain death. It seemed to be a complete contradiction. The God who had just saved and delivered them then led them to a place where they were literally facing certain death by army or certain death by drowning. The psalmist is going to reflect on the sorrow and the fears and the doubts of the Israelites, and he was going, he's going to see his own sorrow and fear and doubt. But he would also come to see that all of the fears and all of the doubting and all of the grumbling and all of the questioning as it related to the goodness of God and his purposes and his plan for their lives, all of them would prove to be unfounded, completely in error. Because family, when God leads us to stand before the sea of sorrow, with the crashing waves of doubt, with the army of anxiety and fear and sadness gaining on our footsteps, and we are sure that this is the end, that God has taken us this far to drop us. We shall in fact not be swallowed by the sea, nor shall we fall by the assaulting army. We shall in fact witness the powerful work of God, when the sea becomes dry ground and he leads us through our sorrow, he leads us through our suffering, where what was once our certain death has actually worked out for our certain salvation. And that is where we will pick up next week. A few applications before we close this morning. Seeing God through our circumstances. And what I mean by that is like when we see God like through the lens of our circumstances. If our circumstances are the lenses we wear to see God, our circumstances will often lie. Especially in times of difficulty and sorrow. Our circumstances will always seem bigger there are going to be times in our life where we want God to act on our behalf now. Like, when? Now. Now. And we cannot imagine why he would wait. There are times in our life where we will not be under, able to understand why would God not immediately intervene. If he is over it all, we know he has a big plan, but why on earth? Would his plan involve suffering? 
Family, I'm going to tell you something. This is not going to be emblazoned on a coffee cup. This is not going to be sold as like a t-shirt. God's plan involves suffering. How many of you are going to post that as a meme this week? God's plan involves suffering. Blessings. Like I said, graduate studies, this is tough stuff. And you know, there's one question that we never really get the answer to. Is why? Why am I facing this? Why am I going through this? Why would you allow it? We don't get that answer. I mean, we do in some ways. We could say, well, we live in a fallen world. There's sin, there's suffering, there's consequences. But that really doesn't provide solace for the hurt. And some of us be maybe wrestling, saying, well, how, how can you say that? How, how, why do you believe that God's plan involves suffering? Because I think of Jesus. And his plan of salvation for our life involved his suffering. And if we follow in his footsteps, well, even if we don't follow in his footsteps, we're going to face suffering in this life. But by following in his footsteps, we will suffer. His plan involves it. And there are going to be times and seasons where all we can see is the pain and all we can see is the sorrow and we're going to view God through it and it's going to be really rough and we're going to be like the psalmist who for days or weeks just lamented and it gets worse and worse and worse. But I believe that there is a time where we have to shift our focus to start seeing God above our circumstances. That he is above them. We have to start reminding ourselves of the true character and nature of God who he is, trusting in his sovereign plan that he does work wonders in ways that cannot be seen, you may not see him working right now. And in the middle of your suffering, you're probably not going to see his plan falling into place. But when he leads you through it, and you look back, and you, can, you see it, and you think, why did I not see it then? And often it is because of the pain and the suffering, we can't see it. But he leads us through it, and we look back on it, and he has led us through it. And some of us as believers in here, you've gone through unimaginable pain. And there's still pain involved, but you can testify that you can now look back and see how God has brought you through it. And you can see God over it. And if that is, is still leaving you struggling, here's my final principle, point, application, ransack the past. I mean ransack it. If you cannot see any good in the present and you have no hope for the future, ransack the past. Look back at all of the times that God has been faithful in your life. Look back and see at all the times that God has been faithful in fellow believers' lives. And if you're like, well, that's that's still not enough. Then ransack the past and grab a hold of every story of salvation through the Old and New Testament. And the greatest story of salvation, the salvation and eternal life that we have in Christ, grab a hold of it as if it's your very life and cling to it. And don't let it go until at the core of your being you know that he who delivered Israel one who has delivered our soul, 
will deliver us even from these circumstances that one day, I don't know how it's possible, but we are told we will look back on and say they were light and momentary. Give us eyes to see. Next week, we walk through on dry ground. Let's pray. Lord, I, I cannot think of a more difficult or troubling discussion. One that peels away the veneer and exposes raw stuff. Hidden things. There are times, Lord, where I am so despondent. And just rupturing emotionally that I can't even imagine how or why this would even be of value. And to think of all the times you have time and again been faithful and just and good. I pray comfort over those who are suffering today. If you are suffering, this was not intended to be a quick fix. You're not supposed to walk out if you're totally healed. You're allowed to still be in pain. You who know someone who's suffering right now, please be gentle and kind. Spend more time listening and speaking. And Lord, give us a foundation of faith to stand on when we do get into those unstable times. That we can trust in your character, that you are good, that you have engraved us in the palms of your hand. And you will not let us go. Ever. Forever and for all time, we are yours. If you do not have a relationship with Jesus, you do not have a relationship with God the Father. The Bible declares that Jesus Christ died for your sins on the cross, was buried, and he's risen. And the Bible declares all who believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. If you do not have Jesus as your Savior, these promises are not for you. You are on the outside looking in, but you are invited. The Bible declares all who believe, all who trust in Jesus will be saved. If your desire today is to be saved, forgiven of sin, saved from death, and the quietness of your heart tell Jesus, I believe. I believe that you died for me. I believe you were buried. I believe you've risen. Please, Jesus, save my life. If that is your heart's prayer, you've passed from death to life, from blindness to sight. You are forever a son or a daughter of God. Welcome to the family. The promises are now yours. We love you, Jesus. We trust in you. We cling to you for our very life. In your name we pray. Amen.